Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, church. I'll be taking the Bible reading today. At the end of the reading, I would say this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying thanks be to God. John chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the ship pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listens to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Yetunde, for that reading. And welcome to City Church. Um, if you are just joining us, we're so happy that you join us for this service and you've come to the place where we want to share the Word of God, where we want to hear God speak to us through the sermon. My name is Femi. I'm lead pastor of City Church. And I want us to pray before we get into this Word, okay? Heavenly Father, we now need you to come. We need you to speak. We need to hear from you. Holy Spirit, we know that no one can really utter truth if you are not the one who is motivating them. So I pray that you guide me in the things I would say because I'm preaching from the words that you have written. I pray also that you would speak to the hearts of the people who have come. Speak a fresh word. Speak a convicting word. Speak a helpful word to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Now, we just got into a series now, and today is the second of that. You can catch the first one on our podcast. But I want to ask you a question. Have you ever spent time with someone who has been blind from birth? I have. When I was growing up, um, and when I would finish school and I was picked up, I'd go and pick my older sister in another school. She normally finished um, way later than I, I, uh, I did. So what would happen is whilst we're waiting, somehow they allowed me to go to the section or where they had blind students. And so I would just go there, spend 30 minutes, 40 minutes with them. And I love spending time with them. The people I met there were brilliant people. They, were, they had wonderful wit. And then also they were just all around good people, great people. But one of the things you can say about them, if you ask them what their greatest desire is, it's very obvious. They'll say to see. You see, because each time I spent time with them, what they were keenly aware of was that I was experiencing something that they weren't experiencing. And it was that I could see. I could see color. They couldn't. I could see visual beauty. They couldn't. I could see visual art. They couldn't. I could see body language. This was an experience that they were excluded from. And so in their teenage lives, not being able to experience this thing was a sore point for them. That's them as teenagers. Take that to being an adult. You see, by the time they become adults, by the time the blind boys become blind men and the blind girls become blind women, they are even much more aware of all the things that they have not experienced. And so it's a really difficult thing if you ask somebody who is an adult who has been blind from birth, what is the thing they want the most in life? They will tell you to see. Well, Jesus made that the reality of a particular man's life. You see, we just read John chapter 10, but John chapter 9 sets the context for this passage. And in verses 6 and 7, Jesus miraculously healed a blind man, a man who was blind from birth. You can imagine what it was for that guy. You know, finally he could experience what everyone was seeing. He was jumping, leaping. Well, I can see, I can see. He was having the time, the best day of his life until he was sent to go and see the Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? They were a group of scholars, right? A group of scholars in the Jewish Bible. They were Jews and they were, they were scholars in the Jewish Bible. They represented a particular sect and they were, you know, they had some influence or some measure of influence in the society. They were leaders at the time. And so they sent him to go and be investigated. The Pharisees did not like Jesus at all. They suspected and were suspicious of Jesus. And so they started to interrogate this man with, how exactly did he heal you? What did he do? Really, where they were going with this man was to try to say, but you know you shouldn't trust this Jesus, really? <laughs> the guy that just healed me from the blindness I've had since birth, I shouldn't trust him. And so, you know, they kept going back and forth, but they got frustrated with the fact that the man will eventually not side with them. So eventually, you know what they did? They threw him out of the synagogue. Well, Jesus heard about this, and so he found the man. And then he had a conversation, a deep conversation with the man towards the end of chapter 9. So much so that eventually the man believed and then started to follow Jesus. Once Jesus was finished with the man, he then turned his eyes to the Pharisees. And that's why in the verse 1 of this chapter that Yitunde read for us, it starts with this, Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, the context of this passage really is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees after the healing of the blind man. 
You know, most people are going to form their image of God based on how the followers of God behave. That's just the way it is. And many people have been turned away from Christianity because those of us who claim to speak for Him, or those of us who model what life is like when you follow God, we're terrible spokesmen. Spokesmen and we are terrible models and representations. Many people look at us and they say, if this is what it means to be a Christian, then I don't want to have anything to do with following your God. And they are right in the assessment of us. But where they are wrong, and if you are tuning in and you are not a Christian, where you may be wrong is who you are looking to to see the real representation of God. Because what we find in this passage and what the Bible teaches is, if you want to make your mind up about God in a most accurate way, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. You see, in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, God revealed himself to Moses as, I am who I am. Moses asks, what's your name? He says, I am who I am. And now in the book of John, Jesus seven times describes himself with that famous line, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. And today we are going to learn more about who God truly is because Jesus says, I am the gate and I am the good shepherd. And for us to look at that, uh, that uh, sermon, we're going to look at it by, by seeing these three things. What God isn't like, what God is like, and what you are like. What God isn't like, what God is like, and what you are like. So let's go to the first point, what God isn't like. Now, one of the things you find if you read the Old, Old Testament is that terms that are used to describe God are also used to describe the leaders of the people of God. And so if you take, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22, it says this. It says, God is judge, God is a lawgiver, and God is king. And therefore, it makes sense that in Israel you had judges, you had lawgivers, and you had kings. Now, this thing is taken to the highest degree when I mean by using terms of that refer to God to refer to leaders. It's taken to the highest degree in Psalm 82, verse 6 to 7, where he says, have I not said, and he's talking about judges, you are gods? Now, don't get it wrong. He's not saying that they are deity per se, that they represent him, because after that, he then says, but you will die like mortal men. And so when you come to the term shepherd, it's the same thing that is happening. In Psalm 23, the most famous psalm, it opens this way, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. And so even the king of Israel, take David in Psalm 78, God says that I took you from shepherding flock and now to come and shepherd my people. The king was a shepherd, but also other leaders were shepherds. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 2, the prophet is told to speak to the shepherds of Israel and he's talking about the leaders there. And so it's in that vein, that background of the Old Testament, that when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, he is speaking to them as shepherds, as leaders of the people at that time. But just like in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse, uh, verse 2, as we said, those shepherds did not take care of the flock. Rather, they were more interested in looking after themselves. Jesus identifies the Pharisees with being bad shepherds. And so this whole passage is really steeped in 
you know, shepherd um, uh, metaphor and shepherd the life of a shepherd. And so in those days, for instance, um, uh, sorry, I should say that Jesus identifies them with bad, uh, being bad shepherds and that he shows us um, two things about them. He says that they are invaders and they are imposters. Invaders and imposters. Just take invaders. In those days, what happens is that a shepherd usually made use of an apparatus. What was it? It was a, a rock-fenced enclosure. A rock-fenced enclosure that had a small gap in it. It's called a sheep pen. All right, now, with that small gap, that small gap enabled, and you can see that in the passage, I'm not going to start referring to all of them, but that's verse 1. But that small gap enabled the sheep to go out and find pasture and then re-enter and then stay there in, uh, for security. And then in that small gap, as you can see in verses 2 uh, to 3, the small gap which is called the gate, there'll be a gate there. In that small gap, a gatekeeper, the shepherd, will station themselves there. And the reason why they did that was to protect the sheep. Protect the sheep from who? From thieves and robbers. But those thieves and robbers, as you see in verse 1, often will still climb in some other way, most likely through the fence. And the only thing they wanted to do was to endanger the life of the sheep. This very much described the Pharisees in Jesus' eyes. You see, because the Pharisees, remember I said they were scholars, so they understood God's word in some measure, in some measure. And in fact, Jesus sometimes advocates listening to them like he does in Matthew uh, 23, verses 2 to 3. But he says, while you listen to them, don't also be like them because they do not practice what they preach. And you would say, oh, that's just for leaders. Actually, Jesus says to all of us, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. That is yeast that spreads. It not only goes from leaders, but it goes for the members. He says that in Luke, verse 12, uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 1. And the yeast of the Pharisees, he says, they are hypocrites. They don't practice what they preach. And so the danger is in all of us. If we are to explain what the Pharisees then are, really, I can use this word to explain it. They often weaponize truth. What Jesus is getting at here is that there's something deeper about these guys. They often weaponize truth. By weaponizing truth, what I'm saying is truth is a good thing, but they take what is a good thing and they use it to attack. Rather than to build up, they use it to attack. And they often do this in two ways. They twist the word or they use the truth in harmful ways. They twist the word or use it in harmful ways. In chapter 9, back to the blind man in verse 16, it says that they, when they were speaking to him, the Pharisees were hung up on the fact that Jesus Christ healed, them on, healed him on the Sabbath. That's two problems with that. The first is that there actually was no law against healing on the Sabbath. The Sabbath day was an important day of the week for Jews, and it was the day where they rested from doing any kind of work, work where they could gain an income. Tell me. How does healing somebody um, 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 classify as, you know, doing work that earns you an income? They twisted the word. But at the same time, look at this. They are hung up on the fact that a man was healed on the Sabbath. Shouldn't they be rejoicing that a man was healed? You see, because when they think about the truth, they only think about it in using it in a harmful way. And this is what we do many times, both we as Christian leaders and also many of us as Christians. We twist the word. We twist the word. By twisting what I'm saying, you can take something that is true, but then you sort of twist it in a way that makes it untrue. You stretch it. 
So many times, for instance, we see women cannot wear trousers. Now you say the Bible says that women should not wear clothing for men, but they can't wear trousers. Is that the same thing? Aren't there women trousers? You say you can't enter a particular place until women, uh, if women are wearing trousers. Now everybody has a right to believe what they want to believe, but I think that's a twisting of the truth. Sometimes we also say things like you cannot question men of God, no matter what they say. Even when they are saying something that's patently false, even then they are saying something that's patently untrue, patently harmful, we cannot question them. Touch not the Lord, or, touch not my prophets, or do touch not the Lord's anointed, or do my prophets no harm. And we keep applying that to them, and many of them go willy nilly doing what they shouldn't do, unaccountable. Other things we say, um, people use conspiracy theories to attack people. Very recently, I saw a, another pastor rising up using numbers, not numbers from the Bible, but numbers just using another man's age, using a man's life. And now he's not only just attacking this man for doing good, he's already attacking his son as well by using numbers of his names. Conspiracy theories, we use it. We twist them. You say Christians cannot have mental illnesses. I mean, really, we say that Christians, um, no matter what they're experiencing in their marriage, no matter the abuse, no matter the form, no matter the adultery, all of these things, they cannot leave their marriage because God hates divorce. This is us twisting the truth. And when people outside the faith look at it, they say, if that's what your God is like, I want to have nothing to do with him. The second thing we do is that then we take the truth, but then we use it in harmful ways. And this is when we try to control people to force them to do what is right, they should do what is right, but we try to force them to do what is right without empathizing with their struggles. So some people struggle with same-sex attraction, and we look at them with disgust, and we just say, you're not feeling it. We just say, just eventually get married or do something. Some people, we condemn them while telling the truth, whereas the Bible says we should speak the truth in love. We like to speak the truth with venom. Other times we tell somebody, if you don't do this, if you don't do this that God has said, I will ostracize you. I will never talk to you again. I will have nothing to do with you. I won't pray with you. I won't, you know, eat with you. And then some of us who have learned a thing, about, a thing or two about truth, about apologetics, about theoretical understanding of certain things, and we see contradictions in what maybe people who don't believe say, we start to speak the truth and condemn. Uh, we, we present our side of the truth and we dismiss their own arguments in a very condescending way. When we do these things, we are being like Pharisees and guess what? We are not representing God properly. We are invaders. Because what the Pharisees did ultimately was like what the thieves and robbers did. The plan for them was to steal, to kill, and ultimately to destroy. We use truth, weaponize it to destroy people. But then... They're also invaders. By that I mean, you see, at some point, whether it is for the purpose of rest or maybe they had a very large flock, the shepherds will pay someone to look after the sheep in their stead. They were called a hired hand. You see them in verse 12. And quite often they'll look after the sheep, do all the things they need to do, but then danger comes in form of a wolf. A wolf comes to want to scatter the sheep when they're outside looking for pasture. And when it scatters the sheep, they now become isolated and then they are more vulnerable to harm. What do you think the hired hand does? Well, he runs away. <laughs> because it's not that he can't do something about it, but if he tries to do something to protect the sheep, you know what? He'll be risking injury or maybe even his life. And because he doesn't care for the sheep, because he doesn't own the sheep, what does he do? Jackpot, he runs away. 
And many times, that is how some of us leaders are. You see, because the sheep for the hired hand are just a means of his pay. The thing he cares about is his pay, not the sheep. I had a, an uncle friend, the minister, who once told me a story about his own friend. His, this is friend used to um, preach a lot about money and how God will give you money. And so one of, one of these days, my uncle friend then asked him, he said, why do you always go on and on about money? He said, ah. He said, let's call um, my uncle uh, Benga. He said, ah, Benga. You remember that Jesus said that we are fishers of men? He said, yes. He said, but there was a time Jesus needed to pay tax. And so he told Peter, go catch a fish and then you'll see a coin there. He now said, yes. He now said, okay. So you see, I am a fisher of men. I need to catch fish. And every fish has its own coin. And it's my job to try to get that coin for myself. Cares nothing about the sheep. He's a hired hand. Or maybe in this case, the fish. He's a hired hand. And any time you have hired hands as shepherds, they will do the barest minimum to take care of the sheep. The barest minimum. It mustn't cost me anything. And very easily, these hired hands also have personal grudges against people in the church. You do one small thing to them, they will never forgive you. Never forgive you. Or on the other hand, they don't confront people who have power or influence or people who they, they want to curry favor with. They will not confront them lovingly, but firmly. They will just allow them to do what they want. And so they work with uh, partiality. They many times will risk nothing to help somebody or they will not invest themselves in people. Why? Because they feel nothing. If you've never wept over the sin of your current member and you've been in ministry for a long time, can I suggest that you are behaving like a hired hand? If you don't pray for them regularly, can I suggest that you don't love them? We have to be careful both as ministers but also as Christians that we don't give off this sort of meanness, this mean-spiritedness that the Pharisees had. Because when people see us as mean, they will say that therefore your own God so is mean as well and I want to have nothing to do with him. If this is what God is really like, I want to have nothing to do with him. But of course they are making a mistake because that isn't what God is like. What is God like? That takes me to my second point. So the second point, what is God like? Well, very simple. What is God like? Jesus. Very simple. You see, Jesus was God that became a human being. In Christianity, we believe that God is one being, but there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Son became a human being, and that is Jesus. But they are united. They are God. They are so fully united. They are God, so much so that when one of his disciples in John chapter 14 called Philip, asked him, show us the Father, and that would be enough for us. Jesus said, Philip, if you see me, you have seen the Father. Believe me when I say, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. To see Jesus is to see God. So then what is Jesus like? Well, he is like a good shepherd. And that tells you immediately that not all shepherds are good, like the Pharisees and like many of us. But Jesus is a good shepherd. To be a good shepherd indicates at least three things as we see from this passage. It means that he knows his sheep, he cares for his sheep, and he rescues his sheep. He knows his sheep, he cares for his sheep, and he rescues his sheep. He knows his sheep. Now, when he says he knows his sheep, notice what he says in verse 14. The good shepherd knows his sheep. I know my sheep, but also the sheep will know him as well. 
You see, in those days, shepherds would stand at a distance where they see their sheep mixed with so many other sheep. They start to speak in distinct voices, in distinct ways, and their sheep eventually come to him and he leads them out. That's what he says in verse uh, 3. In other words, they know the distinct voice of the shepherd. And so, as you see in verse 4 and verse 5, they will not follow the voice of another shepherd. But then he even goes further to say something. He said, not only do they know his distinct voice, and does he not, know, not only does he not know his sheep, he knows them by name. By name. Hmm. Now, this mutual knowledge is key to understanding Jesus' relationship with his followers. That he knows them, and they know him. But he knows them by name. I had a friend, I'll call him Carlos. He was working in Apple in the late 2000s. At this point, Steve Jobs was still there. And I remember him telling me a story. This is probably around the first time we met. He was telling me about a story about how Steve Jobs, the founder, the co-founder of Apple and the visionary that made Apple what it is today. Um, he was still, as I said, he was still alive at this time. And he said how Steve Jobs occasionally would come down to the cafeteria and he used to eat with them. And it was like there was a particular day when he was saying this, he was brimming from ear to ear, that Steve Jobs actually sat on the same table that he was eating, the same cafeteria table as he was eating. That's all he said. And the guy was just like, man, do you know what it is? Because he felt, I'm in the presence of greatness. Now, that was an experience I couldn't have. The only reason he could have that with Steve Jobs is because they had a working relationship. They were employed under the same uh, company. And so that level of knowledge or that level of relationship that he had with Steve Jobs, I didn't have with Steve Jobs. And for him, just being able to have a conversation with him alone was like the best day of his life. Now imagine Steve Jobs then sat down and then said, hey, Carlos, how are you doing? Eh? He's like, wait, wait, we have a working relationship, but he knows my name. He knows my name. He knows my name. Steve Jobs knows my name. Because knowing his name is indicating a greater level of intimacy, a greater level of knowledge. It's not just, hey, this is some programmer that is in this place. He wears the Apple t-shirt. He's eating in the cafeteria. Fantastic. I know him. He's an employee of mine. But now I know his name. If I'd said that, he'd probably be doing some somersaults. But then what if he says to somebody that's walking by, hey, Come and meet Carlos, my very close friend. At that point, the guy will just die. Because now, it's not just that he has a working relationship with him. He knows his name, but he's intimately connected with him. Do you see the three levels? Jesus says, one, I know my sheep. Now, you can just say that is generic. Just like um, uh, celebrities that have two million followers on their Instagram or their, or their Twitter, they have their fans. But then he says, but I know my sheep by name and they know me as well. And be like, man, that is incredible. But then he then says, the basis upon which I know my sheep is the same way the Father knows me. Just as the Father knows me, verse 15. I know my sheep in the same way the Father knows me. I understand this. The Father has known the Son from all eternity. The most intimate relationship ever that there was, was between the Father and the Son. They love each other perfectly. And Jesus is saying, this is how I know my sheep. You know, the funny thing about this is that most of us, 
we are in this either of these two categories, which is we are well-loved because we are not well-known. Or we are not well-loved because we are very well-known. You see, when people don't fully know us and just know some part of us, like we put on our social media and everything, we just take some aspects of us, obviously they love us. They love that part, that well-crafted image of us because they don't really know us. When people then know us and they see all our imperfections, they don't really love us because of what they've seen. But Jesus actually says this, I know you. I know you intimately in a way even you don't know yourself and I still love you. What kind of God is that? But the thing is also, he says another thing. You know, the Father knows me and I know the Father. The way I know you is the way the Father knows me, but I know the Father. Question, do you know Christ in the same way? Are you intimately involved with him? Or do you just know him through doctrine? Do you just know him through what he said about him? Do you know him intimately? Second, he cares. Caring means that you provide what is necessary for the flourishing of a person or a thing. Now, this presumes that you have some kind of affection for that person, some close affection, which we started to talk about in the previous part where we said he knows us. Now, unlike the hired hand who cares for nothing about the sheep, God as a shepherd stunningly cares for us. There's a passage in the book of Isaiah which says something, it's almost crazy. I Just reading it in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9 and 11, the prophet is saying that those who bring good news, proclaim that good news, proclaim that good news to Jerusalem. What is that good news? Tell them, here is your God. Behold your God. But why does behold your God become good news? It's because of the kind of God that he is. Who is that kind of God? He says in verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. Why does he carry them close to his heart? It's because that is exactly where they are. You are in the heart of God. You would hardly find any religious text and that God speaking about those who they created like this. You are carried in his hand. You are close to his heart. Why? He cares for you. And because he loves you that way, when he decides to care for you, he then does all the things that he needs to do to enable you to flourish. Jesus says here that I have... P, uh, 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 that, that I lead them out. When they hear the voice of the shepherd in verse 3 to 4, then he leads them out. Where is he leading them out to? To make them find pastures. You see that in verse 9. Or look at that very famous psalm. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. He cares for me, and because he cares for me, I lack nothing. And how does he show that he lacks nothing? Well, he leads me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He refreshes my soul. You see, the care that God gives to us is to enable us to flourish. And so he brings his word. He brings his church. He brings your friends. He even takes your experiences in life. And then he uses it to grow you into who you are meant to be. Into who he wants you to be. It's only in this God that you find this kind of intimate relationship where he's caring for his people and he's growing them. He is so committed to you. He refreshes your soul. 
I know some of us are saying this make, doesn't make any sense because if you know the kind of grief I'm in now, if you know what I am suffering, I feel all alone. No, you need to know the God who is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our suffering. Why? Why is it that God? Because he is not a God who is aloof, sitting somewhere in heaven. He is the God who became a man. He can, he can feel the feeling of our infirmities. He knows what it is to go through pain. But guess what? He knows you. And not just does he know you and love you, he cares for you. And so he's committed. He's committed to growing you. He's committed to refreshing you. God will not leave you alone. He has said, I will not leave you or forsake you because he knows you, he knows your name, and he cares for you. Do you see that this is nothing like what the Pharisees present about him? But this God that knows your name and cares for you, because he's committed to helping you grow, he rescues you. You see, the, the sheep, sheep were, are very stubborn and very stupid animals, quite frankly. Quite often when you try to quarrel them into a group, what happens is that as you try to bring them together like this, they go the other way. They go the wrong way. You go again, they just do silly things. And many times when they go the wrong way, they eventually wander off. And then when they wander off on their own, they eventually get lost. They go the wrong way, they wander off, and then they get lost. And once they get lost, they are in the place of danger in the valley of the shadow of death. They are in the place of danger because that is where wolves are waiting. They often wander off to danger. And many of us are like that right now. You know that you are in this particular sin. You've been doing what you shouldn't be doing. And you have said, well, I will find my way out of it. I will find my way out of it. You have not conquered the distractions in your life. You do not do any of the personal devotions. You kind of skip in and come into church. You don't feed yourself with any kind of sermons during the week. You actually don't practice worship in any way. You don't go to community. But you know that I have got this sin under control. It's just that somehow it has grown. But I'm still a good person, you tell yourself. I still understand how to do things. But then you wonder if and now you are in a mess and you don't want to confess. Well, Jesus doesn't want to leave you where you are. Jesus doesn't want to leave you where you are. Jesus says, I will go and rescue you. He says, I have other sheep. I have other sheep that I must go and bring back. In verse 14, Right? Is it verse 14? Yeah, no, verse 16. It says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep and I must go and bring them back also. In the context of this, he was speaking about Gentiles. That is, there were Jewish sheep, but he was going to bring people who are non-Jews. I get that, but don't miss another principle that is there. Jesus is the one that is going to go and rescue and so even as you are in that deep mess here, he is not coming to condemn you. I haven't come to condemn you, but I'm saying, hear the voice. Because I go to bring them and they too will listen to my voice. Listen to the voice of your shepherd saying, don't stay there. Don't stay in that sin. Confess, repent, speak to someone, talk to your church leadership. Because Jesus is here to rescue you. He's not leaving you alone. You know, in Luke chapter 15, he describes it even better. He says about certain people, he says in verse 4 and verse 5, 
He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. He is the one that doesn't leave the one behind. He leaves the 99 that are secure and even the one is very valuable to him. He doesn't do a cost-benefit analysis and say, well, 99 out of 100, isn't that okay? Let that one wander off. The heart of the good shepherd, the heart of the true shepherd is that he knows his people by name. He knows his sheep by name. He cares for them and because he cares for them, when they are in danger, he goes to look for them and then he rescues them. If you are hearing the voice of the good shepherd now, can I beg you, don't resist his voice. Don't make another excuse. Don't justify yourself. Come out of that sin. Ask for help and he will rescue you. Because he's so committed to you. Do you see that the Pharisees do not speak for this God? Jesus does. Jesus is that true God. And he's asking you now, he wants to rescue you because he cares for you, because he knows you and he knows your name. How would you respond to him? Now that takes me to my final point. If that's what God is like, then what are you like? You see, that question I really have, particularly for those who say they don't believe in the biblical God. I want to ask you this question. What would you do with Jesus? It's a very important question. It's a question that the people faced. You see, after healing the blind man in verse, in, in verse 16, and um, chapter 9, verse 16, and after he, the, um, you know, he had started being investigated by the Pharisees, people then were a bit divided, he says. He said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. And even after what Jesus says here in verses 1 to 18, the verses following 19 to 21 is the same thing. He performed the miracle, they were divided. Now he said this thing, and guess what he said? The Jews who heard these words were divided again. Many of them said he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eye of the blind? They were divided. And right now, many of you, the condition of your heart right now is that you are divided in your heart because you are hearing two voices, aren't you? There's a voice that is telling you this is fascinating. Really, the power to heal the blind, but the compassion to use that power to heal the blind, for God to become a human being and to actually experience what I'm experiencing, that's the kind of God I want you know. They're saying, also, he sounds extremely wise. And the way he has described himself, really, he wants to know me? Really? He cares? Really? He wants to rescue? That sounds like a very good proposition. That sounds very attractive. But then another voice is then speaking to you and saying, but, but hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. This may require them me changing my lifestyle. It may require me sacrificing my life for this God. And also, you know what, actually, when you think about it, it's very eloquent for you to be able to say, well, he knows, he cares, and he rescues, but talk is cheap. Really, a God, really like that, it may be nice to think about that, but really, I just believe in facts. And then, you probably would even say one more thing, you would say, 
I get what you are saying. So you've spoken to the Christians before, and you are saying that actually you Christians, we Christians need to be better behaved. We Christians, you Christians need to be better behaved so that people like me, you who don't believe, will be able to believe. And then you say, but that doesn't distinguish you Christian from any other religion. Because take, for instance, the Buddhists have their Dalai Lama. He's a pretty well-behaved guy. Why don't I just follow Buddhism? Hindus have their gurus. They're pretty well-behaved, at least some of them. Why can't I just follow Hinduism? Catholics have their saints, very, very well-behaved people. Why can't I become a Catholic? Or actually, even secular non-religious people. We have Bill Gates, who some of you are attacking. Why can't I just become like a non-believer? In other words, this thing about be well-behaved people so that non-believers like myself to follow you doesn't make you people distinct. It doesn't make your God distinct. You've ultimately still not distinguished Christianity from me from any other. To which I want to say to you, why don't you wait? Because then in reading this passage, you've actually missed the most important and distinct element. You know what that is? He is the gate before he is the shepherd. Twice in verse 7 and verse 9, uh, verse nine it says, I am the gate. I am the gate. He is the gate before he is the shepherd. Notice what he is not saying. He did not say, I will give you the address to the gate. I will give you the address to the gate. That is... For you to get to the gate, you need to make this right turn, you need to make this left turn, you need to go straight down, you need to do all of these things before you can access eternal life. No, he says, I am the gate. Neither does he say, well, when you get to the gate, you will need a code, and I'm also giving you that code. So you need to be able to input that code before you get to the gate and access internal life. That is, you need to be intellectually savvy, you need to understand this doctrine, you need to understand this principle, you need to understand all of these things before you can get eternal life. He says, no, I am the gate. Neither does he say... There are many gates, so that when you get into this gate, you need to go through this window, and then there's another gate, and another gate, before you get to eternal life. I am the gate. Enter through me. And you say, so how then do I get eternal life if he's the gate? Why speaking metaphors? Well, allow me one more thing. Remember that the hired hand ran away when the wolves came because he didn't care for the sheep. You see, any good shepherd will actually not run away. David was a shepherd boy who became a king. And David, before he went and fought Goliath, said his credentials were when people came to, when a bear came to attack the sheep, I fought the bear. When the lion came to attack the sheep, I fought the lion. David was basically saying, I risked my life for my sheep. You know the thing with Jesus, as he says here in verses 15 and verses 17, it's not just that Jesus risked his life for the sheep, but no, Jesus laid down his life for his sheep. Because the alternative to eternal life is eternal damnation. And Jesus says, I, as your God, who knows you, who cares for you, who wants to now rescue you, have seen that that is where you are heading. And I don't want to partake of that. 
So instead of partaking of eternal condemnation, I will go for that eternal condemnation in your place. I have partaken of that death so that you can have eternal life. You will find this in no other religion because every other religion asks you to lay down your life for your God. Only in Christianity do you have the God laying down his life for you. He is the gate. Enter into that gate. Do not allow badly behaved Christians to stop you from entering to the gate. Enter into the gate for life. Do not allow your suffering and the suffering of other people that you have seen around stop you from accessing eternal life. Enter into the gate. Do not allow your own stubborn, divided heart, your own sinful heart to stop you from accessing eternal life. Enter the gate. And so oh, this sounds good. This sounds whatever, but is it based in history? Yes, it is because Jesus said, I laid down my life, but I take it up. He did not just stop in condemnation. He entered. He came back from the dead to enter into the eternal life. Eternal life is not a fiction. It is what Jesus has right now as a human being. And he said, I'll give it to you. And you can check all the history and all of these things to show that the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact. What are you looking for? You have historical fact. You have a God that knows you. He knows your name. He loves you despite that. He cares for you and he is here to rescue you don't continue to remain divided in your heart enter the gate when you do so it will reveal who you really are will you remain a god to yourself will you remain a sheep that is lost or will you be the kind that enters through the gate that is christ into the sheep pen for eternal life how would you respond let us pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.